the dog. Sounds so pretty when it's played by a dead man. Even the frog is a ditty when it's played by a band program. Well, any tune sounds like opera when it's played with harmony. Hello. Hello. Well, welcome back. Thank you. Let's discuss this awful, boring movie. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, everybody, we're today on the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for an Oscar for Best Picture, in order, from the very first award ceremony to, hopefully, someday, the present year. We are going to talk about the Hollywood Review of 1929. The movie that answers the question, why wasn't there a Hollywood Review of 1930? <laughs> it really does. It really does answer the question. <laughs> so definitively. Like, I really thought we were going to, like, have to, like, look into it and kind of, like, go, like, well, the changing times. And then, you know, just people wanted the narrative. And instead it's like, no, vaudeville sucks on film. All this fucking patter <laughs> between the songs is fucking garbage. Just cut that shit out and just do isolated musical numbers as shorts. Why didn't you do that in the first place? It also definitely answers the question... Has the ukulele always been annoying? And the answer is yes. Yep. Absolutely. Fucking ruins Laurel and Hardy. That's how bad <laughs> this movie is. While I don't think it's the worst movie that we've watched, mm -hmm. because In Old Arizona definitely still exists. Yes. It was by far the hardest one for me to watch, because when it was not irritatingly twee, it was boring it was yeah honestly for the first hour of this i kept having to go back because i realized i'd like spaced out for five minutes yep same and then for the <laughs> second hour i i kind of don't i kind of didn't bother <laughs> oh yeah this is the this musical number and then it would suddenly be a new musical number and i would go well just as well for people who have never seen this movie a I highly recommend that you keep it that way. Mm -hmm. But B, it is totally just one small musical number or skit after another. So it is kind of the 1929 big budget version of being forced to go to your friend's sketch comedy show. I mean, here's what it is that's both better and worse <laughs> than that. What it is in my head, in the second hour when they kept just bringing in famous people... I started being like, oh, this is like the reels that an entire network will do for the fall season. Like, it was so like, I'm Grant Gustin, and you're going to be so excited about what's coming up on The Flash. Except, like, you have to pay fucking money for it. <laughs> they charged you money to go see this thing. They literally do a reprise of a song from the Broadway melody. Indeed they do. In the middle of this other movie. Which made me really appreciate that they didn't do the Broadway melody. So much about this movie made me appreciate so much about the Broadway melody. For instance, I think one of my notes about the Broadway melody is, why didn't we kind of have more time with the show within the, the show? And well, because it would be this movie. <laughs> Because, like, just a review show of random musical numbers is this thing we just watched. And I would way rather watch a, like, love triangle with the same song over and over and over again than watch that. Oh, 100%. There were parts of this movie that were entertaining. For me, most of them were in the second act. I would agree with that. Although, uh, also, 
the intermission is where I officially gave up. <laughs> oh my god, there's a fucking intermission. There's an orchestral 10-minute intermission in the middle of this movie. Yeah, there's straight up an entract where there's nothing on stage and you just see like the orchestra in the pit on the lower fifth of the screen. I agree with you that like the things that were like vaguely interesting to me were mostly in the second act. I'm trying to Susan, let's go through this act by act and play a game called Do You Even Remember This Happening? Oh, I'm so into this game. All right. So, do you want to read them off? Let's start with The Palace of Minstrel, which I do remember only because they say minstrelry so much in that song. Also, it's the first piece. Yes, in that way where like, oh, we're we're going to wait to get to the fireworks factory. Like I like <laughs> I clearly if it hadn't said minstrelry all the time, I would have gone like, eh, all right. Followed by the opening Jack Benny, Conrad Nagel skit, Masters of Ceremonies. I do remember this because this was the point where I learned that the ukulele has always been incredibly irritating. Yeah. Yeah. Like at this point, we're still tuned in. Then we've got Got a Feelin' for You by Joan Crawford, which I only remember because of going, oh, Joan Crawford's here. Now it's gonna, nope, that didn't fix it. It really didn't. Hot young Joan Crawford did not fix this movie. I also learned that Wow the Charleston is a super awkward, unsexy dance to watch people do. Yep, even if they're Joan Crawford. I don't remember old folks back at home. No idea. Yeah, I have no memory of old folks at home whatsoever. I remember Old Black Joe only insofar as like, hmm, another another questionably racist song. Yeah. Do you remember anything about low down rhythm? No idea. Song and dance. Yeah, none whatsoever. I remember your mother and mine because it's so weird. It is an ode to mothers and how everyone loves their mother, and how all you wanted as a child was to sit on your mother's knee and be with your mom. And it's like, oh, maybe maybe Freud knew a little bit more than I've been giving him credit for. <laughs> you Were Meant For Me, which I remember because it is the song from the Broadway Melody. Yes, and Anita Page and Conrad Nagel made an appearance again. Yeah. That was nice. Oh, now I am only just now learning that the bit of that number is that it is actually Conrad Nagel singing. It, it isn't him. It's the guy from the Broadway Melody actually singing, and he had his voice dubbed in for Conrad Nagel, which ruins the joke, yep. which makes sense because it was one of like two good jokes in the entire fucking movie. Do you have any memory of nobody but you? Uh, I think, and I could be wrong... But I think that that's the the full-on song with Cliff Edwards on ukulele. And he has possibly the most irritating singing voice to ever have been committed to recording. I mean, it is dreadful. Yeah. Do you remember... Uh, well, no, you remember your mother and mine. I had forgotten... I had... Oh, no, I do remember this reprise because it's the thing with the two weird guys who, like, he introduces in the middle of the number and then goes, I shouldn't have introduced them. And it's like, yeah, dude, you shouldn't have. Who were these randos on stage? <laughs> Get them fucking off. What, you have the power to just make them leave. Yep. What is the bit? The comedy skit that comes after it, cut up, no memory whatsoever. Oh, I have memory of this because it's the strangest thing on earth because William Haynes comes in and just eats all of the buttons on Jack <laughs> Benny's suit. 
How did I miss this? Just straight, just straight up eats them. And then you're like, and it, and it takes you like a minute and a half to go, is this like a 1929 thing where like people had ch- suits that were cheap enough that like their buttons were edible? Because the whole b- bit is supposed to be that Jack Benny's suit is really, really cheap. And William Haynes is coming in and just like ripping off his suit to show what a cheap piece of shit suit it is. But one of the ways he does it is he eats all of the buttons off the suit. And it's, I don't understand what they were supposed to be. Were they like grapes? Like what, what food are buttons <laughs> supposed to be? They're like small cookies. I, I, I guess. Maybe like little crackers. Is I never knew I could do a thing like that. The one that was introduced with her being super duper tiny. Yes. And I have to say, I do remember this piece because it was the one that made me go. I bet if I saw this on stage, I would be so much more engaged. Yes. About the whole movie. Yeah, that makes sense. It was one of the only numbers where where I was like, oh yeah, this is like well done. And this woman has stage presence and mm-hmm. it's coming through on film. Like, it was one of the few where it didn't really like move me in any way, but I was able to pay attention without much effort. Yeah. Which is pretty much the the highest compliment I can give any number in this movie. So I remember for I'm the Queen because it was just awful. It was the exact opposite of all of the things we just said about I never knew I could do a thing like that, which is it's a one joke song. It's a bad joke. It's performed badly. It's fucking interminable. There's a <laughs> there's like a three minute setup to the bad joke which is just the queen thinks she's in charge of things. That's the whole joke. It's just very, very bad. Then we have Laurel and Hardy. I do remember this because I hated it. Yes. In a way that I did not know it was possible to hate Laurel and Hardy. Here's a thing that I hate more than anything in the world, which was this entire movie, is (laughs) I hate it when people try and be bad on purpose but then they're not good enough to distinguish between being bad on purpose and just not being any damn good. Yeah, that is totally what this felt like. And like every fucking vaudeville sequence in this, the bit was like, we're unprofessional. And it, after a while, it's like, no, nah, dude, you guys just are unprofessional. This just <laughs> fucking sucks. Like your timing is bad. And without any of the scrappy, like, let's put on a show. No, there is no, charm. there's no there's Muppets no to this. No Muppets <laughs> whatsoever. Because that's kind of what this is now that I think about it. It's like, it's a shitty fucking Muppet show without any Muppets. Yeah. It's trying to hit that same tone of like a review show where we're just doing the best we can, except you have such a fucking budget. You have such a fucking budget. You can put Noah's Ark up as just a huge map background for a really fucking dark joke about singing in the rain, which we're gonna (laughs) get to. Anyway, then the act... One ending is Military March, which now that I'm looking at this list is actually where I checked out because I have no memory of Military March whatsoever. Me neither. And part of that was really that the Laurel and Hardy sketch just bothered me to a point where I, it, I, I kind of just stared into the middle distance in, in rage. Oh yeah, no, I definitely like was just thinking to myself, how were Laurel and Hardy bad? How did they screw that up? 
And then suddenly I like looked down and I was like, are they doing an actual honest to God 10 minute orchestral intermission in the middle of this thing? And then off we went. And the answer is yes, yes. And then off we went into act two. I want to interject here for a moment that the acts, the intermission, and the finale all have title cards that are brought out by three tiny, creepy little blonde girls. Yes. Like little girls, not like, oh, little girls. Like they're eight. Mm -hmm. And they are straight up the ancestors of the twins in The Shining. Yeah. They are so terrifying. (laughs) Well, and one of the other things that makes it creepy is I don't think it's between every act. It's like every other one, or like, it's when they don't feel like having a vaudeville transition between the two acts. Oh, no, but it's like between act one and act two, not like each individual sketch. Occasionally an individual sketch will have them. Right. Right. So at completely random times. Anyway, uh, do you have any memory of the Pearl Ballet? I actually do. Okay. Because after 10 minutes of Entract, I was like, okay, you've got to pay attention to this movie because we Mm -hmm. do have to actually review it. The Pearl Ballet was, uh, it was a ballet that was very much like the ballet in the Broadway Melody where there was a soloist who did on point tap but it was not amazing and it went on for a lot longer than that piece in the broadway melody which was like oh here's a five minute no it wasn't even five minutes it was like here's a 90 second novelty act and this was like six minutes long yeah i i kind of remember the pearl ballet here's the sad thing i don't remember the dance of the sea and so i'm like i buster keaton was in this movie It totally did not register to me in any way that that was a Buster Keaton number. I remember parts of it. There was a super creepy patriarchal part of it where it's like these mermaids dance and there's one mermaid in particular and then it's like Poseidon or King Triton from The Little Mermaid. I'm not really sure. It's like, I'm so glad to have my daughter back home untouched by the hands of men or something to that effect. And I was like, wow, that is super gross and weird. And there was a, like, a bubble set piece. And then Buster Keaton was dressed up as a woman in a bikini type outfit. It was not amazing. I do remember our next number only because so much time is spent on setup for it. And it's such a weird fucking idea. Because it's like a, it's like a Dr. Demento style novelty hit called Lon Chaney's Gonna Get You If You Don't Watch Out, where they really bring in Lon Chaney to do, like, an elaborate dance number about Lon Chaney, like, creeping up behind you and grabbing you, and that's it. That's it. I in no way remember this piece, and I'm a little disappointed because by your description, it sounds amazing. Oh, no. But it... There is no way that it was, because it's in this movie. Yeah, no, it's like, we did this in 1929. We did, like, a novelty one-hit wonder hit about Lon Chaney. (laughs) Yes. With, like, an elaborate Jack Benny intro about how he thinks Lon Chaney is a myth. Now, there's two possible numbers that are the incredibly racist number about Turkey, which I only remember because the intro was, like, a bunch of bad jokes that were racist about Turkey. And I thought, Susan's gonna love this. This film's great. Oh, man. 
I am so glad you brought that up. So this was like a something of a watershed moment for me because they talk about how like Turkey is a country that is ruled by a sultan. And I'm like, Turkey is a republic that was founded six years ago and has a president and a prime minister and what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. So like geopolitically it's incorrect but then they go on to be like there are three parts of turkey like "Mm, okay are there (laughs) okay and this takes place in the southern part where the sultan lives well okay even if the turkish republic didn't exist the sultan lived in istanbul which is in the northwestern part of the country but the dance number was actually like Kind of good. I mean, it was impressive. This was the one where they, like, literally used a woman as a jump rope, right? Yes. yes. And there were there were a lot of, like, boy, at least they're fucking out there trying parts to this number. <laughs> yeah, but the setup was just garbage. Oh, yeah, it was so fucking bad. Ugh. Then we get to one of the one and a half numbers I actually liked okay. Okay, I have to say, if everything in this show had been this show this movie mm-hmm. had been as funny and clever as the romeo and juliet piece mm-hmm. it would have been great yeah the only problem with it well actually explain what it is first and then i'll say what the problem was this is clearly a short made at a different time for something else that they like cut into this movie yeah it's in color yeah where the rest of the film is not except for i think a couple of other things it's clearly not on the same sound stage like, not filmed at the same time, was never in the fucking same room as anybody else from this film, doesn't even pretend like it. But the bit is, you just sort of cut to the balcony scene from Romeo and Juliet, and then they get done, and you think like, oh, that was, I mean, that wasn't great, but it was a pretty nice portrayal of the balcony scene. It was accurate. It was an accurate yeah. interpretation, no question. And then they pull out, and you get the studio notes about Romeo and Juliet, where they love everything about it except for the title and the dialogue. So don't change a thing. Just call it... God, what do they say to call it? Because it's great. Oh, I don't remember. It's like a great 1920s, like almost dirty, but like not actually dirty because you're not legally allowed to be dirty yet. Bit where it's her stockings or something that has like fucking (laughs) nothing to do with the plot. And then they do the balcony scene again using like 1929 era slang. But like clearly in the way that like even in 1929, this slang was like outdated and horrible, which is great. And here's the problem with it. That interlude where they're like, oh, we love it, except for the name and the dialogue is too damn long and is not as funny. They also didn't have to literally do the entire balcony scene as setup. Probably could have cut in like halfway through and we would have been fine. That's that just seems like nitpicking in the face of this entire rest of the fucking movie. Then we have singing in the rain for the first time for the first time, which is okay, but not great. The first time like you, you really get a sense of how much of singing in the rain, like singing in the rain, singing in the rain is the staging. Because the song's, like, fine. The staging of this is boring. There's fake rain and a big old tree, and they're wearing, like, galoshes and a raincoat and just wandering around under an umbrella and singing, singing in the rain. You really get an appreciation for Gene Kelly. Mm -hmm. Because 
he makes this song like the most gleeful like fuck anything bad in my life because i'm in love so everything is amazing yeah twirling around that light pole thing and that this song does not carry that then after not carrying it from the song they then undercut it further with this weird outro to singing in the rain where they talk about how like it's such a saccharine song that like a lot of these saccharine songs the songwriter killed himself and you're like whoa dude oh god i totally forgotten about that whoa tone it down (laughs) Then we get Charlie, Gus, and Ike, which either is the racist number about Turkey, and I've totally forgotten the other number, or I've totally forgotten this number, and I don't know which one it is. Well, the racist bit about Turkey is the Adagio dance, so I don't know what Charlie, Gus, and Ike is, because I don't remember. I have no memory of Charlie, Gus, and Ike. I do have a memory of Mary, Polly, and Bess, because I hate Mary dressed (laughs) up. Because she's also the queen from For I'm the Queen, and what I learned is, like, Everyone else in this movie, I'm like, "Mm, you guys are doing your best in this, like, bad, poorly thought out musical review. Like, I'm not going to fucking call Jack Benny a no-talent hack because this movie was bad. I'm going to call Mary Dressler no-talent hack. She's bad in both of her two musical numbers she somehow gets in this thing, where Joan Crawford only gets one. Yeah, she was not amazing, and I, uh... I mean, I do not understand her her inclusion unless, like, her entire style of acting is something that has not, well, has not stood the screen test yeah. of time. Because it is so grating and unappealing. I do remember Orange Blossom time because it was when I went, I was literally checking the timeline for the entirety of Orange Blossom time. I was like, is this the last number, the next to last number? Can I skip ahead? I really came close to just skipping through Orange Blossom time. It was 15 minutes long, if it was a minute. It lasts a long, long time. I thought there were going to be like two full musical numbers after Orange Blossom time when it started. Uh, and I first checked the time, and instead there is a very, very brief singing in the rain reprieve, where, again, the entire cast is standing in front of Noah's Ark and singing singing in the rain, which is the darkest joke I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> it is really weird. Yeah. And then it ends. Then it's just over. There's not There's not even like a thanks for joining us. Nope, just go to credits. They just do singing in the rain before God drowns the world. <laughs> and, th- th- and then it's over. Which, to be fair, if I were God and this were my example of what humanity had come to, can't blame them. Yeah, no. So we only forgot five numbers out of 20. Which I actually am surprised and proud of. Yeah. And then there were one there were one and a half good ones. So What was the half good one? Singing in the Rain is just a good song. Even if they don't do a particularly good staging of it, it's like, well at least it's still singing in the rain. Even if they totally undercut it by being like, This song is totally sappy, but the guy who wrote it killed himself. Yeah. <sighs> I really feel like this movie got nominated exclusively on the Lionel Barrymore-directed Romeo and Juliet sketch. Oh, now, see, I was going to say, I feel like this is a weird, like, reverse modern Oscar situation. Whereas I was watching this, I was like, did this get nominated for special effects? 
Because boy, does this movie like bad special effects. Mm. During the, the opening number, it kept reversing the film stock to negative and then reversing it back for no apparent reason. But the sets also were like half black and half white. Yeah. Cut down the middle. There was a thing that happened because of that, though I don't know how that contributed to the content. They do Bessie Love is like a tiny little woman in the pot in the pocket of Jack Benny and then she hops out and grows up to regular person size at one point. They do a lot of screen transition stuff. The Technicolor stuff is like cutting edge for nineteen twenty nine. Especially the, like, full-color Technicolor shit on Romeo and Juliet. Right. So, I, I mean, I guess, in a way, yeah, it is getting nominated on the back of the Romeo and Juliet segment. It feels, like, weirdly like the 1929 equivalent of, like, well, I mean, we gotta nominate Avatar. Everybody loved it. Like, the special effects were, like, amazing. I'm sure every movie's gonna look like this in five years. Whoops. <laughs> Thank God it is not. We still haven't really decided whether deciding whether the best picture of the year went to the right movie is its own episode or not, have we? I, I don't think we have. And you know, I don't know that, that in this case we need to. I mean... I feel like when we get to the years where there is not a clear and obvious winner, there will be some debate to be had. Yeah. But we certainly have not crossed that line yet. Yeah, and like, here's the other thing I'm going to say about this, because it, it's the Broadway melody. The Broadway melody did... It, it's the Broadway melody, obviously. Like, it's, the, <laughs> like, literally none of the other movies are even close. Like, this is, this is better than in old Arizona or Alibi, but it's still, like, a three. It's like a, a maybe a four. If No, it's a three. Uh, I'm going to give it a four... Just for the Romeo and Juliet part. Actually, because that brings the whole average up. Yeah. Because, like, I'm going to give that bit actually an eight. That's fair. The middle part brings it down from, like, a solid nine and a half. But the joke is funny. It's well performed. It's mm -hmm. well directed. But see, like, we're given an eight to basic competency, which is how low this movie has, like, brought us. That's my argument for a three is like, yeah, sure. That segment alone is an eight, but that segment alone is like five minutes of this two hour film. That's fair. Which I would otherwise probably give a two to. Oh, yeah. I think I'm giving it a three, but I am going to say like Good Work Academy Awards, you're two for two. You picked the right movie two years in a row because Wings was also the right movie. We both agreed. Even though you didn't love it. I didn't. But I didn't like Seventh Heaven and the Racket more than I didn't like Wings. Well, no, because you're human. Yeah. I would definitely say that, you know, there there was really no competition. Yeah. Alibi was, at least with the previous year, like, the Racket and Seventh Heaven were totally competent movies. Yeah. Were they things I'll ever watch again? No. But, like, In Old Arizona is just disastrous. Alibi makes no damn sense. No. The Patriot is lost to history, so it, it physically hasn't stood the screen test of time. Yeah. I think the Hollywood Review was the best non-Broadway melody we saw from this year, and it's bad. Yeah, that's not saying much. So next week... Yes. We get to start 1929-30. We are watching Disraeli, which I am extremely trepidatious about. Ooh. Oh, boy. I, oh, boy. 
Um, <laughs> Tune in next week to find out if this movie is as anti-Semitic as the poster makes it look like it probably will be. Yep. Oh, <sighs> boy. Until then, we will... Introduce ourselves, which we forgot to do at the top of the podcast. Oh, yeah, right. I'm Susan Harassler. And I'm David Daw. And that was a movie. Our famous catchphrase, that was a movie. Well, it is now. Good night, everyone. Seven, 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 seven.